0: Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who've written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you.
1: And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're glad you're with us, and so is Alan Dempsey. He's the engineer, and uh, he just loves doing this. He loves his work. And uh, Andrew Herdliska produces the show for us. Matthew Kelly uh, joins us from Cincinnati, Ohio. His book, Life is Messy. Matthew, uh, welcome to Orlando, Florida. We're glad you're with us. How are you doing? Thanks, Pat. Great to be
2: with you. Doing real well today, thanks.
1: What's the background of this book? How did it come about?
2: The uh, background of this book is sort of a very messy time in my life. And, um, you know, when things were unfolding with COVID last year, uh, this theme just sort of emerged. That, you know, I think we discovered how messy life can be. Uh, We were face-to-face with that, and I I got out um, a set of journals that I'd written during a very difficult time in my life, and I started sort of flipping through those journals, and the book really is, is sort of those journals have been turned into this book, sort of very difficult time in my life, you know, what I experienced, how I tried to get through it, how I did ultimately get through it, and, you know, how we source hope in the midst of sort of the darkness and difficult times in our lives.
1: You open your book with a topic called Life is Difficult. Tell us more.
2: Yeah, I mean, life is difficult. And I think one of the problems that we have as human beings is that we we want it to be easy or we expect it to be easy. And one of the things that's manifesting, I think, in our society as parents, and I'm, I'm the father of five little ones under the age of, 11, um, and I see a lot of parents trying to make life easy for their children, and I I think that's an enormous mistake. It isn't Life isn't supposed to be easy. Um, most people who have what we would call an easy life tend not to be very happy or fulfilled, and it isn't our job as parents to make our children's lives easy, and in fact, by doing so, we can cause irreparable damage because it is not our job to smooth the road for our children. It is not our job to prepare the road for our children. It's our job to prepare our children for the road um, so that they can face the challenges and difficulties of life head on. And, and so I wanted to, you know, in the beginning, just put it out there and say life isn't supposed to be easy. It shouldn't be the goal in life. Life is difficult, but that doesn't mean it can't be tremendously fulfilling.
1: Next topic for you, turning to comfort. What does that mean?
2: Yeah, comfort plays a very interesting role in our life. You know, I think it is a divine gift. I think that um, it does serve a purpose in our life, especially when we've experienced trauma. And, you know, part of what I talk about in this book is that I had experienced a number of traumas, and um, some of those traumas were recognized and acknowledged, but some of the trauma in our life we don't actually acknowledge as trauma. We we don't actually say, wow, that was traumatic, or I experienced the trauma, or I've been traumatized, even though that is the case um, in, in many, many cases. But when we experience difficulty, when we experience trauma, or even when we experience hard work, It is natural and normal and justified to turn to comfort. Um, That is the role of comfort. Comfort plays a role in restoring us. You know, I mean, you you think about your your experience with sports. You go out there, you train hard, you work hard, but then your body needs to rejuvenate. It needs to be restored. It needs to be refreshed. And, And many, many different forms of comfort Help us to achieve that. I mean, everything from just sleep is a form of comfort, um, for example, a very natural, basic form of comfort. The problem is, is that um, comfort is very seductive. It, it is very easy to become addicted to comfort. And comfort um, drains us of our... Uh, Um, our moral strength in many ways. We become become cowards if we become too comfortable um, because truth comes along and we're not willing to absorb it into our lives or not willing to stand up for it because we get addicted to our comfort. And then with any addiction, comfort uh, produces less and less of a result but requires more and more of the substance. In this case, the substance is comfort. um, And it becomes an insatiable... Uh, desire for comfort, they cannot be satisfied and will not be satisfied, and ultimately leads to a lot of sort of discontentment and resentment, anger. Um, And we see this in our society because we think we are living in a comfort-addicted society.
1: Let's move to the next topic. My guest is Matthew Kelly from Cincinnati. Life is Messy, the name of his book. You've got a chapter simply called Inspiration. Matthew, uh, tell us more.
2: I think it's just so important to the human person. I think w- when you spend time with people, um, th- they either feel inspired or they feel you know, uninspired. Um, when I was a kid, you know, we used to open Christmas presents. I remember this, you know, and uh, inevitably one of us, I have seven brothers, one of us would get this gift that we wanted all year for Christmas, and then we'd open it on Christmas morning and there'd be a tiny little sentence right by the barcode that says, batteries not included, you know. And at that time, no store in the world was open on a Christmas Day. So you got this gift, but you couldn't get batteries. And to be honest, Pat, I think some people should have that sign on their forehead, batteries not included because there's a lot of people, I think, in the world today who don't come with batteries included, and so they're constantly trying to drain other people's energy because they don't have their own energy. Um, I think we've got to ask ourselves, where's our energy level? And is our energy level inspiring to other people? Are we giving other people energy, or are we stealing energy from other people? And one of the things that has an enormous impact on that energy is inspiration. How do we remain inspired? The human being, when inspired, performs differently at everything. It doesn't matter if it's basketball or being a parent and everything in between. The human being, when inspired, performs differently at everything. And if we know that, we should be constantly looking for sources of inspiration and we should have go-to sources for inspiration that we just know we can wake up in the morning. We feel like our energy is a little bit off, or we're just a little bit not so motivated as usual. There should be songs we can turn on. There should be pages, specific pages of books that we can read. There should be very specific things that we know we can do to tap into massive inspiration in our lives.
1: Now, uh, get into this topic for us. Cherish the ordinary. What does that mean? Yeah. So w- when we
2: have a difficult time in our life. Um, when we have a problem in our life, when we experience a trauma, uh, very often we look for a spectacular solution to whatever problem it is we're experiencing. When the reality is, is that the solution usually lies in the ordinary. Um, especially, you know, when whatever we've experienced has been debilitating of any type. Um, uh, the way back is usually the ordinary. And what I talk about in the book, one of the things I talk about in the book is the yeah. idea that, like, if you had a car crash, you know, and you were really beat up, you know, they, the first thing they do is they, they, they teach you to walk again. They teach you to talk again. And they teach you the basics. Um, and when we experience um, non-physical traumas in our lives, uh, we tend not to look at it that way. We tend to expect to run sort of a 100-yard dash faster than ever, you know, two weeks later, and it doesn't work that way. And the ordinary is, um, is an untapped source of inspiration uh, and an easy road back to sort of fulfillment and happiness. So learning to take a long walk and just being in nature, you know, Just making a great
1: meal. My guest from Cincinnati is Matthew Kelly. His book, Life is Messy. We've got another segment with Matthew. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando.
0: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word.
1: Now, here's Pat. Matthew Kelly is with us. His book is called Life is Messy. And Matthew, we've arrived at the topic just for the joy of it. What's up here? What's that mean?
2: We do, uh, we do so many things in our lives, and... I think we do few things just for the joy of it. You know, um, I've had the the honor of working with many professional athletes, and I think one of the things that happens in the course of their careers is they lose, um, you know, playing their sport just for the joy of it. It happens to professional athletes. It happens to parents. They lose parenting just for the joy of it. And most of us in our career paths different points in our lives. We, um, we lose sight of the joy we get from doing you know, whatever it is we love doing. Um, but it also happens with our hobbies. Um, we tend to crowd out the hobbies that bring us most joy from our lives. The idea of this part of the book is, you know, what is it that you can do that gives you sort of pure, unobliterated joy? And are you taking time to do that on a regular basis? because that will have an enormous impact not on the 30 minutes or one hour or three hours that you spend doing that thing, but on your whole day and every part of your life.
1: Now, Matthew, let's talk about everyone is fighting a hard battle. Yeah.
2: That's uh, a great topic. It's, And I think we live in a hyper-judgmental society. I think we live in a... Um, Uh, a society where we see sort of the industrialization of gossip through things like social media, and uh, we tend not to give people the benefit of the doubt. We tend not to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And the reality is, is that everybody we meet every day, they've got something going on inside them. You know, they have a struggle. People don't walk around with signs, hanging around their necks that say, you know, um, I just found out I have cancer or I'm struggling with depression or I'm estranged from my son or my husband just told me he doesn't love me anymore or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But every person we ever meet is struggling with something um, and, and, and carrying, you know, a heavy burden. We're battling a a battle within, and if we're mindful of that, I think we're gentler with each other. You know, I think that we approach each other with a little more respect, a little more compassion, empathy, um, and we're just gentler with each other. And so um, I've been traveling for almost 30 years now, when I set out, I was 19, and I, you know, I was very young, I was very idealistic, and I didn't realize how messy life was. I didn't realize that everyone's carrying sort of a heavy burden, and, you know, I I, I sort of was like, okay, well, if you're struggling with that, just fix that, you know, or if this is the problem, just work at it and work harder and go through it, go around it, go over go whatever. you know, and by spending so much time on the road and meeting so many people struggling in so many ways, you realize, well, it's it's not that easy. It is more complicated than that. And everyone is struggling with something. And if we're mindful of that, I think we're just a little gentler with each other. And, and that's probably a good way to approach people.
1: What's beautiful kindness mean?
2: Throughout history, there have been uh, some horrific moments in history, um, and there are horrific things happening all around the world today. Uh, may not be happening in our neighbourhoods, but they are happening, and, and the truth is, uh, many of them happening not too far from our neighbourhoods. Um, even in the midst of these horrors that exist in our world, uh, the human spirit tends to be on display in, in forms of, you know, what I would call beautiful kindness. Um, in Auschwitz, uh, during the Second World War, a um, man escaped from Auschwitz. Gas decided to kill 10 people uh, to deter people from escaping in the future. You know, the, the, they go through the line and randomly select 10 men, Um the tenth man starts, you know, wailing. You know, who will take care of my wife? Who will take care of my children? And another man steps up and says, "You know, I'll take his place." and And so the guards put the father back in line, and they take this other guy um, who, who agrees to be murdered in in place of of this this other man and. Within weeks, the war was over. This other man lived to tell the story, raise his children, um, have grandchildren. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful kindness, right? That's a heroic kindness. It's, it's an extreme example, but it's an example of things that happen every day. I think that we do want to live by each other's happiness. I think we are naturally kind and generous beings. Um, when we're unthreatened by, you know, poverty and violence, I would say, as human beings.
1: What is Roses and People about?
2: (laughs) Roses and People. This is interesting because it's a really short section of the book, and it's amazing how many people comment on it, you know. But um, what I say is, you know, there are three things I know about Roses. They are beautiful, they all have thorns, and I'd rather live in a world with roses than a world without roses. And there are three things I know about people. They are beautiful, they all have thorns, and I'd rather live in a world with people than a world without people. And so it's the realization that, you know, all people are beautiful, all people have thorns, you know. People are going to hurt us. And, and we are going to hurt people, um, and in fact, you know, anyone we choose to get close to is going to break our heart in some way or another. Um, that's not the question. And so what the question becomes is, it's like, we have to find the people that we feel are worth suffering for, because we will suffer for the people we invite into our lives.
1: Now, <clears throat> Matthew, uh, mourning the life that could have been, what are you telling us? Yeah.
2: So we all mourn different things in our lives. Um, we, we all live unexpected lives. You know, nobody plans out their life when they're 15, 16, 18, 21, and then proceeds to live the life exactly as, as they planned it out. Um, we have unexpected experiences in life, unexpected twists and turns, ups and downs. Some of the unexpected unexpe- is, is is a glorious surprise and a welcome um, a welcome addition to our plans. But uh, some of the unexpected is uh, is heartbreaking, heart wrenching, is painful. And um, ultimately, we have to decide you know, what are we going to do with our unexpected life. Um, are we going to be resentful that it isn't the life we dreamed of or planned? Or are we going to look at it some other way? What I talk about in this session you're you're referring to, um, mourning the life that could have been, is that sometimes in order to move forward and live our unexpected life and embrace our unexpected life fully, we, we do have to mourn the life that could have been. We, we do have to go through a grief process and a mourning process of realizing, okay, that's the life I wanted. It isn't the life I've got. Um, I'm going to mourn that life um, so that I can make peace and and, and move on and, and live the life that is actually
1: the life before me. Matthew Kelly is our guest. <laughs> life is Messy, the name of his book. How about the past? You write about it. What's up? You know, we
2: all have a past. We all um, we all struggle to make peace with our past at different times in our lives, and we all uh, yearn for the past at different times in our lives. There are there are parts of our past that that do call to us, that we do wish. Oh, I, I wish I could revisit that in this way, or I wish I could experience that again in this way. Um, the past is, is a wisdom friend, as long as we don't spend too much time dwelling on it. Um, so the past is like, uh, it's like the rear view mirror in, in a car. It's good to glance at from time to time to get a sense of, of where you've been. Um, but if you keep your gaze set on the rear view mirror, you will crash the car. And, and I think the same is true in our lives. If, If we spend too much time dwelling on the past, we will destroy our present, and potentially that will have disastrous effects on our future.
1: Now, I want you to move to this topic. Luck is a factor. Yeah.
2: So a lot of my friends don't like this one. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, they don't like to believe that luck is a factor in our lives, but I've been, I've been astoundingly successful in many, many different areas. And I think it would be disingenuous for me to say that luck hasn't been a factor in all of that. Um, a lot of my Christian friends will say, well, no, you've been blessed. And, and I don't disagree with that. I agree with them a hundred percent on that, but th- there is this other factor. Um, and, and I think it's important to recognize it, because if I had been born in the Sudan, I would not have lived the life I had lived. You know, if I had been born in China or under China's one-child policy, I would not have lived the life I've lived. You know, if Bill Gates had been born five years before or five years after when he was born, would he be the person he is today playing the role he is in our culture? I don't think so. You know, there was luck that he was born at that time. Maybe that was Providence. Um, There was luck that he went to pretty much the only high school in America that had access to a computer on which he could learn the things that became foundational to building Microsoft and and transforming an industry. So um, I think hard work is indispensable. I think Providence is real and present. I think we do live blessed lives. But there is a, there is an element of luck that um, that goes into our lives. And it, it's sort of this unknown X factor. And I think that pretending that it isn't there doesn't help. I mean, you look at this book, Life is Messy. It, I've, I've written 30 books, but this is just absolutely the right book at the right time. As you know, Pat, when you start writing a book, you don't know when it's going to be published. You don't know how long before it's going to you know, come into the marketplace. Um, and, and so you can't necessarily predict, oh, I'm going to write the right book at the right time. Um, you try to write a great book, and, and you hope that it resonates with an audience. I mean, one of the reasons I think this book is doing so well is because it just is the right book at the right time. You know, when I was writing... Uh, people say, what are you writing about? Oh, it's called Life is Messy. And like universally, people would say, wow, ain't that the truth? Or man, that sounds like just exactly the kind of book everyone needs at the moment. Because I think what we are experiencing is just how messy life can be.
1: Matthew, we've got time for one more. Getting unstuck. Explain.
2: Yeah, we all get stuck. Um, so knowing that we all get stuck at different times, uh, we should be honest about that. We should teach young people how to get unstuck, uh, rather than pretending that, you know, we don't get stuck or they won't get stuck. Um, and, and we should help everyone develop some sort of skills to realize, okay, how do I know when I'm stuck? What do I do when I'm stuck? Sometimes it's a matter of being a little bit patient but sometimes there are things that you can do to get yourself out of being stuck and and to move forward, and do you know the things that you can do? We talked earlier a little bit about inspiration. You know, one thing for me is, like, when I get stuck, I need to step back, I need to read, I need to reflect, and usually something will break through, an idea will come forth, Um, but everyone's different, and I think we need sort of our own toolkit when we get stuck because we've been stuck before and guess what? We'll probably be stuck again in the future.
1: My guest has been Matthew Kelly. The book, Life is Messy. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back.
0: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The
1: Word. Now, here's Pat. Matthew Kelly is with us. His book is called Life is Messy. And Matthew, we've arrived at the topic just for the joy of it. What's up here? What's that mean? We do uh,
2: do so many things in our lives. And... I think we do few things just for the joy of it. You know, um, I've had the the honor of working with many professional athletes, and I think one of the things that happens in the course of their careers is they lose, um, you know, playing their sport just for the joy of it. It happens to professional athletes. It happens to parents. They lose parenting just for the joy of it. And most of us in our career paths, at different points in our lives, we, um, we lose sight of the joy we get from doing, you know, whatever it is we love doing. Um, but it also happens with our hobbies. Um, we tend to crowd out the hobbies that bring us most joy from our lives. The idea as part of the book is, you know, what is it that you can do that gives you sort of pure, unobliterated joy? And are you taking time to do that on a regular basis? because that will have an enormous impact not on the 30 minutes or one hour or three hours that you spend doing that thing, but on your whole day and every part of your life.
1: Now, Matthew, let's talk about everyone is fighting a hard battle.
2: Yeah. That's a great topic. It's, And I think we live in a hyper-judgmental society. I think we live in a... Um, a society where we see sort of the industrialization of gossip through things like social media, and uh, we tend not to give people the benefit of the doubt. We tend not to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And the reality is is that everybody we meet every day, they've got something going on inside them. You know, they have a struggle. People don't walk around with signs hanging around their necks that say, you know, um, I just found out I have cancer or I'm struggling with depression or I'm estranged from my son or my husband just told me he doesn't love me anymore or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But every person we ever meet is struggling with something um, and, and, and carrying, you know, a heavy burden We're battling a a battle within, and if we're mindful of that, I think we're gentler with each other. You know, I think that we approach each other with a little more respect, a little more compassion, empathy, um, and we're just gentler with each other. And so um, I've been traveling for almost 30 years now, when I set out, I was 19, and I, you know, I was very young, I was very idealistic, and I didn't realize how messy life was. I didn't realize that everyone's carrying sort of a heavy burden, and, you know, I I, I sort of was like, okay, well, if you're struggling with that, just fix that, you know, or if this is the problem, just work at it and work harder and go through it, go around it, go over go whatever. you know, and by spending so much time on the road and meeting so many people struggling in so many ways, you realise, well, it's it's not that easy. It is more complicated than that. And everyone is struggling with something. And if we're mindful of that, I think we're just a little gentler with each other and, and that's probably a good way to approach people.
1: What's beautiful kindness mean?
2: Throughout history, there have been uh, some horrific moments in history, um, and there are horrific things happening all around the world today. Uh, may not be happening in our neighbourhoods, but they are happening, and, and the truth is, uh, many of them happening not too far from our neighbourhoods. Um, even in the midst of these horrors that exist in our world, uh, the human spirit tends to be on display in, in forms of, you know, what I would call beautiful kindness. Um, in Auschwitz, uh, during the Second World War, a um, man escaped from Auschwitz. Gas decided to kill 10 people uh, to deter people from escaping in the future. You know, the, the, they go through the line and randomly select 10 men, Um the tenth man starts, you know, wailing. You know, who will take care of my wife? Who will take care of my children? And another man steps up and says, "You know, I'll take his place." And and so the guards put the father back in line, and they take this other guy, um, who who agrees to be murdered in in place of of this this other man and. Within weeks, the war was over, this other man lived to tell the story, raise his children, um have grandchildren. You know that's a that's a that's a beautiful kindness, right That's a heroic kindness it's It's an extreme example, but it's an example of things that happen every day. I think that we do want to live by each other's happiness. I think we are naturally kind and generous beings. Um, when we're unthreatened by, you know, poverty and violence, I would say, as human beings.
1: What is Roses and People about?
2: (laughs) Uh, Roses and People. This is interesting because it's a really short section of the book, and it's amazing how many people comment on it, you know. But um, what I say is, you know, there are three things I know about roses. They are beautiful, they all have thorns, and I'd rather live in a world with roses than a world without roses. And there are three things I know about people. They are beautiful, they all have thorns, and I'd rather live in a world with people than a world without people. And so it's the realization that, you know, all people are beautiful, all people have thorns, you know. People are going to hurt us. And, and we are going to hurt people. Um, and in fact, you know, anyone we choose to get close to is going to break our heart in some way or another. Um, that's not the question. And so what the question becomes is it's like, we have to find the people that we feel are worth suffering for because we will suffer for the people we invite into our lives.
1: Now, <clears throat> Matthew, uh, mourning the life that could have been, what are you telling us? Yeah.
2: So we all mourn different things in our lives. Um, we, we all live unexpected lives. You know, nobody plans out their life when they're 15, 16, 18, 21, and then proceeds to live the life exactly as, as they planned it out. Um, we have unexpected experiences in life, unexpected twists and turns, ups and downs. Some of the unexpected is, is, is a glorious surprise and a welcome, um, a welcome addition to our plans. But uh, some of the unexpected is, uh, is heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, is painful. And um, ultimately, we have to decide, you know, what are we going to do with our unexpected life? Um, are we going to be resentful that it isn't the life we dreamed of or planned? Or are we going to look at it some other way? What I talk about in this session you're you're referring to, um, mourning the life that could have been, is that sometimes in order to move forward and live our unexpected life and embrace our unexpected life fully, we, we do have to mourn the life that could have been. We, we do have to through a grief process and a mourning process of realizing, okay, that's the life I wanted. It isn't the life I've got. Um, I'm going to mourn that life uh, so that I can make peace and and, and move on and and live the life that is actually the life before me.
1: Matthew Kelly is our guest. Life is Messy, the name of his book. How about the past? You write about it. What's up?
2: You know, we all have a past. We all um, we all struggle to make peace with that past at different times in our lives, and we all uh, yearn for the past at different times in our lives. There are there are parts of our past that that do call to us, that we do wish. Oh, I, I wish I could revisit that in this way, or I wish I could experience that again in this way. Um, the past is, is a wisdom friend as long as we don't spend too much time dwelling on it. Um, so the past is like uh, it's like the rearview mirror in in a car. It's good to glance at from time to time to get a sense of, of where you've been. Um, but if you keep your gaze set on the rearview mirror, you will crash the car. And, and I think the same is true in our lives. If, If we spend too much time dwelling on the past, we will destroy our present, and potentially that will have disastrous effects on our future.
1: Now, I want you to move to this topic. Luck is a factor.
2: Yeah. So a lot of my friends don't like this one. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, they don't like to believe that luck is a factor in our lives, but I've been, I've been astoundingly successful in many, many different areas, and I think it would be disingenuous for me to say that luck hasn't been a factor in all of that. Um, a lot of my Christian friends will say, well, no, you've been blessed, and and I don't disagree with that. I agree with them 100% on that. But th- there is this other factor, um, and... And I think it's important to recognize it, because if I had been born in the Sudan, I would not have lived the life I had lived. You know, if I had been born in China or under China's one child policy, I would not have lived the life I've lived. You know, if Bill Gates had been born five years before or five years after when he was born, would he be the person he is today playing the role he is in our culture? I don't think so. You know, there was luck that he was born at that time. Maybe that was Providence. Um, There was luck that he went to pretty much the only high school in America that had access to a computer on which he could learn the things that became foundational to building Microsoft and and transforming an industry. So um, I think hard work is indispensable. I think Providence is real and present. I think we do live blessed lives. But there is a, there is an element of luck that um, that goes into our lives, and it's sort of this unknown X factor, and I think that pretending that it isn't there doesn't help. I mean, you look at this book, Life is Messy. It, I've, I've written 30 books, but this is just absolutely the right book at the right time. As you know, Pat, when you start writing a book, you don't know when it's going to be published. You don't know how long before it's going to, you know, come into the marketplace. Um, And and so you can't necessarily predict, oh, I'm going to write the right book at the right time. Um, You try to write a great book, and, and you hope that it resonates with an audience. I mean, one of the reasons I think this book is doing so well is because it just is the right book at the right time. You know, when I was writing... Uh, people say, what are you writing about? Oh, it's called Life is Messy. And like universally, people would say, wow, ain't that the truth? Or man, that sounds like just exactly the kind of book everyone needs at the moment. Because I think what we are experiencing is just how messy life can be.
1: Matthew, we've got time for one more. Getting unstuck. Explain.
2: Yeah, we all get stuck um so knowing that we all get stuck at different times uh we should be honest about that we should teach young people how to get unstuck uh rather than pretending that you know we don't get stuck or they won't get stuck um and and we should help everyone develop some sort of skills to realize okay how do i know when i'm stuck what do i do when i'm stuck sometimes it's a matter of being a little bit patient but sometimes there are things that you can do to get yourself out of being stuck and and to move forward, and do you know the things that you can do? We talked earlier a little bit about inspiration. You know, one thing for me is, like, when I get stuck, I need to step back, I need to read, I need to reflect, and usually something will break through, an idea will come forth, Um, but everyone's different, and I think we need sort of our own toolkit For when we get stuck, because we've been stuck before, and guess what? We'll probably be stuck again in the future.
1: My guest has been Matthew Kelly. The book, Life is Messy. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right
0: back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat.
1: Matthew Kelly, our guest, in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, Life is Messy. Uh, he's in He was in Cincinnati. Uh, Noel Maring is in Ventura, California. Fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Her book is out, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Boy, oh boy, what a title. Noelle, I'm excited to catch up with you. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing well. It's great to be with you.
1: Why was it important to write this book?
3: I found it was important to write for two reasons mainly. The first one is that I was noticing that uh, Christians were increasingly being absorbed into this woke movement. Um, which I find to be an a fundamentally anti-Christian movement. And secondly, because I, I, it occur- it re- I realized uh, in studying it that it is harming the very people it aims to help or claims to help. And so those two reasons seem like things that we need clarity about in order to resist and reject it fundamentally, and that's why I want to write it.
1: You open your book. There are four parts to your book. Uh, the p- first part is called Origins, Ye Shall Be His Gods, The Road, Co. Frankfurt, and Coming to America. Uh, fill us in on part one.
3: Sure. So part one, I was just trying to uh, trace the origins, you know, and I do so not in, in a hugely um, intricate historical way because that's not the book I want to write, but I wanted to give people the big picture. So I locate origins first and foremost in the Garden of Eden because I do think that this is fundamentally um, can be traced back to there. Um, uh, but, but then I go through some of the history, starting with Hegel and Karl Marx, and then um, and then follow the German Marxist movement, which what, in 1935 relocated to America, or group of them did in and, and, um, something called the Frankfurt School, which was a communist think tank basically. And they got wel- they were welcomed by Columbia University. And that's really where you see the origins of critical theory. So when you see critical race theory, critical race theory is a specific branch of critical theory. So critical theory was just um, Marxism repackaged uh, into this new uh, new method of criticizing and dis- dis- uh, rupturing all that is. And it's so it, where Marx kept things just about economics. Critical theory broadens it to include race issues of gender. Um, sexuality, now transgenderism, all under this umbrella of this thing they they created called Critical Theory. Um, And you can see now that their goal really was to get into every institution in the West. So they went to Hollywood and decided we need uh, all of art and all of popular media, popular culture, to be based on narratives of oppression, who are, you know, identitarian oppression. Um, And then they went to, you know, media, journalism, the academy, um, the teachers' colleges, training teachers. Uh, so this, re- and then certainly politics. So this certainly was an all-out long game that they were playing, trying to infiltrate in order to subvert all of the institutions for the sake of revolution.
1: Oh, well, marrying is with us. We're talking about her book, "Awake, Not Woke." Uh, part two, you called dog dogmas group over person will over reason power over authority the crowd and the victim uh, tell us more
3: sure so i was trying to understand what the internal logic of the woke movement was so for example when the black lives matter uh, movement first had their their website with their statement of beliefs it became it was exposed and on their statement of beliefs they also wanted to clear the culture disrupt the traditional nuclear family, things like this, or more, more sex and gender issues. And a lot of Christians were confused. Why does a movement about racial justice want to clear the culture and disrupt the family? And so I was trying to understand why these things are connected in their minds. And what I came down to is that there are three fundamental distortions that are, that are embedded in the woke movement. The first one is that you have to emphasize the group over the person. What do I mean by that? In the woke movement, the person becomes reduced to a totem or an instantiation of the the group that he or she represents. So, for example, um, you'll see woke, famous woke people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, writer of the 1619 Project, say there's a difference between being racially black and being politically black. What does she mean? She means that it's not enough to—you don't necessarily want to empower a black person because they're in this oppressed group. They have to align themselves with the political ideology in order to be someone who can adequately represent their group. So it's really not about empowering people in, the, in, these, in these certain groups. And you see the same thing with pro-life women. I'm a pro-life woman. I would not be invited to represent womanhood, according to the woke, even though I am in you know, the correct group, quote-unquote. Because I'm not fighting, they think define womanhood is being fundamentally defined by oppression, and abortion is the, the most concrete way in their minds you fight your oppression. So I'm, and somehow according to them, not fully living out my womanhood. Okay, so that's the first uh, distortion: the group over the person. The second one is will over reason. You find this, and people will call it expressive individualism or therapeutic culture. Basically, it's based on um, the the Frankfurt School guys were neo-Freudians who said that our Our deepest desires, especially our transgressive desires, are sexually non-conforming desires. This is how we actually become more liberated, by identifying them and expressing them and living them out in our lives. So the more unconforming you are, the more you let your free flag fly, the more free you are from your internal repression. This is part of our liberation, and it's political. Um... So that's the second one. And the third one is uh, a power over authority. So the woke believe there should be no hierarchies that are you know, based on fundamentally higher things. So, um, for example, um, you know, they, they even in basic things like they, they, they don't believe in having a penal system with jails and institutions. Um, but also, certainly, there should be no authority imbued in fatherhood. Um, and, and also no authority between mother and child. Um, uh, and certainly no you know, pastoral authority. But, but what, they are, what they are left with, then is all human power. So that's the irony, is that any movement that espouses this in the name of equity always ends up becoming a tyranny, right? Because the, their power is just the fact of power has to be rooted in something higher than itself in order to be, have any hope of being responsible to, to, to something outside of ourselves. And if we don't have that rooting, then we become tyrants. Um, and you see this again and again. Now it's China, Pol Pot, um, but obviously Stalin and Lenin. So, uh, so that's the third fundamental distortion. What I realize is that the three things that are rejected in these dogmas, the person, reason, and authority, are the three characteristics of the logos, which is the mind, the reason of God, manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the author and authority of all. Um, and so, you know, this really is movement that has him as the target. The fourth chapter I have in there, the crowd of the victim, is basically I try to address the spiritual underpinnings of this more deeply, which is that fundamentally Christ is the perfect innocent victim um, who, you know, turned uh, the scapegoating mechanism on its head, and the woke want to deify themselves, so they have to claim victimhood from themselves. That's why you see the victim mantle being so important, so crucial to their movement. But also they want to claim his innocence, but they cannot. And so, part of the more sinister aspect of this movement is that it aims to corrupt innocence in this life. This is why they have we have transgender story hours with children, trying to, they're striving to corrupt and indoctrinate children into the movement, uh, because innocence points to something higher, points to a true goodness, a true standard, and that has to be eradicated in order for them to have power.
1: <clears throat> My guest, and she's in Ventura, California, <laughs> <coughs> Mel- Noel Merring. We're talking about her book, Awake, Not Woke. Well, Noel, we've arrived at part three. Indoctrination. The sexual revolution. Thought and speech control. Education activism. Uh, fill us in on all of this, Noel? Sure. Well, the
3: sexual revolution has always been uh, are very important. To revolution, Marx and Engels wrote about this, and then all the Marcusa, all the Frankfurt schools wrote prolifically about this. Um, that the way you, that the family and the faith are the two biggest enemies of revolution, and the family, um, ha, the 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 key they understood to to uh, disrupting family um, stability was through the father, because so they they would, they said the father had we had to turn fathers into people who are morally. Um, their moral authority is eroded through um, encouraging licentiousness, encouraging them to be unfaithful, not not reliable husbands. Uh, once you do this, then the woman becomes distrustful, callous. She and, and then a woman who is callous is a woman who is able to um, degrade herself, you know, ultimately because you, a woman, women feel things, You know, tend to, in their natural state are very tender, very sensitive, can feel um, wounds, all these things. So once we become hardened, it becomes easier to um, divorce ourselves from what's happening to our bodies. And this is how you get women to become less just. And then thirdly, the children become rebellious, because the two people who are most uh, tasked with being moral authorities for them and figures of stability no longer are. And so they, the children become um, distrustful of authority generally. And, and, and God specifically. So it really erodes the ability of our natural ability to kind of understand, be introduced to the person of God is, uh, which most properly happens through the, a loving and stable family home. Uh, of course, there's redemption doesn't mean it's impossible, but it, 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 it's it's, a, it's an effective way to disrupt that that relationship. Um, so I go into a lot of depth about the sexual revolution in the book, um, but but I I won't belabor it here. Um, Secondly, the thought and speech control. So there are a lot of layers to this, but I think that we see what has been happening is that there's a real sense of confusion. People don't know how to trust their own understanding of reality at this point. For example, a reporter on CNN recently said that there's no scientific consensus to say whether or not a baby born is a boy or a girl. Everybody knows <laughs> exactly that it, whether or not a baby is boy or girl when the baby when that baby's born. But the idea that the, there's this establishment narrative that's ha- that's happening—it's it's a sign of dominance. They're trying to say you cannot trust what you know to be true, and so you have to lean on us to understand what is the correct view, despite what your senses tell you, what your mind tells you, what everything tells you, what your eyes tell you. Um, and so it's this type of thing, this constant undercutting of our ability to have an, any sort of access to truth or rely on, our, rely on ourselves to know what is right. Um, that, that makes us weaker, and so it makes us more docile to, to their narrative. Um, uh, so that's you know, the thought and speech control. And, and, and I'll say one more thing about that is that I think we've seen a lot recently that you know, you're told you know, for example, after George Floyd, we were as people. You know, people were told, you know, if you're not in this, uh, a, black, a black person, you need to take a seat and just listen because your 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 opinions don't, you know, they don't have weight. But then, at the same time, they would say, "Silence is silence. Speak up." And the only those two things combined, you hear in a lot of different um, instances. And I think that what is implied is that if you combine them, the only thing you could do, left to do is compelled according to their narrative. You can't be silent. But you can't say the wrong thing. You have to speak up. You have to speak up for the ideology. That's speech and thought control. Um, thirdly, uh, the education activism. So this was, I traced through some of the history of the Frankfurt School was really specific about targeting education. They knew that if you can get students um, and that their minds are malleable um, and you can, they will, you know, obviously for the future. So they really sent out, set out to train teachers, teachers, um, uh, uh, throughout the um, and then uh, you know you take a, one group of teachers you tr- train them you know the teachers college they go out and start spreading the ideology in their di- in their um, not the diocese but their school school um, district and you do this for decades and it just keeps it's in a very effective uh, way to spread the ideology and they knew that what their goal was is that education should not be to get people to become critical thinkers but critical theorists the difference is that the point of critical thinking is to arrive at the truth. The point of critical theory is to rise at political activism and change and ultimately power. Um, and, and I think we see that a lot in education now, that they see themselves as change agents, uh, which is different than what, you know, education is supposed to be.
1: Noel Maring is our guest, and um, we've done another segment with Noel. Uh, when we come back, we're going to move right into part four, uh, which is about restoration the person, the family, the city of God. Uh, But we got to take a break. But before we do that, let me just uh, remind you uh, uh, that we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. You can be a huge help. Uh, Just go up to the website, OrlandoDreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com and just check in. Uh, Just say, good idea. I like this idea. Let's become a Major League Baseball city. And if it all works out, you know, I, I'd be interested in season tickets perhaps someday. But we need to hear from you, OrlandoDreamers.com. And one other reminder, folks, get those COVID shots. Just get it done. Mayor, Dem- Mayor Demings here in Orange County will be so happy uh, if we can get uh, this whole community just, uh, just taken care of. Doesn't cost anything. It's no big deal. Just a shot. You know, you've had hundreds of them in your life. So that's the story. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando, and we will be right back.
0: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's
1: Pat. Noelle Merring is with us from Ventura, California, and Noelle, as advertised, I want you to tell us about part four of your book, Awake, Not Woke. Fill us in.
3: Sure. So, obviously, you know, I I believe there's a path to restoration, (laughs) Um, and so I divided the ending uh, part into three chapters, the person, the family, and the city of God. Um, and I started with the person, because I really do think that the um, that the goal of this movement is based on rupture and, you know, that even rupture within ourselves, where we don't really know who we are or who we're supposed to be. Um, and, and I think the antidote, you know, is to understand, uh, you know, who we are anthropologically, but also um, who... To, to really know ourselves so that we can be sincere with who we are. So what do I, what do I mean by this? Um, I think that the movement of the woke is built on accusation. You, if you want to be a perpetual victim, you have to have a perpetual perpetrator. But I think that we as Christians are really called to understand ourselves as people who need mercy. And the way we do that is by being sincere with ourselves. We don't pretend like we are someone we're not. Um, you know, we We don't ignore our sins or deflect from them. We actually try to struggle against them. We try to grow in generosity. We try to be better parents. We try to be better friends. We try to be better neighbors, better citizens. Um, but that, but trying, striving to, to to improve in these ways, to be more loving, uh, to walk for life through life as a better reflection of Christ, takes uh, a, a sincere takes uh, that we uh, require, it requires that we sincerely see ourselves and see see where where we need to improve. And so I think that's a really important part of um, our witness and also our own being um, whole, not bifurcated people, Um, that we truly have clarity about ourselves. The more we see ourselves, the more we see how much we need Jesus, and the more we can look with eyes of mercy upon other people, Um, because we don't want to imitate the rage of the tribalism that is happening in politics all over the place. We need to walk a different road, which is not fed by rage of tribalism and accusation. Um, secondly, I think, you know, rebuilding the family is obviously a key um, part of this, and, and, you know, it's part of that process of being known. You know, I've been married for 23 years, and in marriage, you know, you, it can be terrible but also beautiful in the sense that you're really forced to confront yourself, um, and, you're, you know, you're, you, see, you see where you're selfish, you see your egos, um, but you also get to contend with those things and in a loving environment, you know, where you can be truly vulnerable and truly grow um, together. Uh, and I think that's huge for children to grow up seeing that they can they can have that experience too, where they can be truly known and truly in a love in a place where they're truly loved. Um, uh, and I think that's uh, anyway, so I think that that is so key. if a, if a family was one of the biggest obstacles, we have to rebuild and recreate the family and, um, and, re- and you know and, and redeem our families. Um, and thirdly, the city of God, you know I think it's so important that we you know ha- are resisting this movement in an active way, building new institutions. Um, maybe finding places where we can, you know, support places we can support that aren't woke, <laughs> um, businesses and all these things, um, and in, in politics and in media. However, you know, truly all of anything we do out in the world to resist this movement has to be an overflowing of our interior life of prayer. And we all have to be understand this is a spiritual battle, not just a political one. And so we have to arm ourselves for that, for that spiritual battle by being deeply going to Christ in our interior life of our souls. Um, and that any activism that tries to avoid that is going to be an empty, empty clanging of the bells, and that you know it's not going to be a true witness um, to Christ. And, and it is He who will change people's hearts, not not us. So um, I think that that is the restoration that we need, um, and and I think I feel confident and hopeful that that we He will arm us for that and that give us the grace to to do it effectively.
1: Tell me this, Noel. What do you want people who read your book to take from it? What do you want listeners today to, uh, to take from our discussion?
3: I think I would love for people to really um, take away from the book and from this discussion a sense that there's that they have some clarity about what's happening because this movement really does operate on a lot of confusion. It's very, they move goalposts a lot. Um, and it, it takes good Christian precepts and then loads ideology into them. And I think a lot of people are real feeling confused and that this doesn't sit quite right, but they don't know how to pinpoint it. So I think the more that people can have clarity and know that they're not alone in feeling uncomfortable with it and wanting to resist it, then the more we can have courage in in that in that fight.
1: Now, well, tell me more about the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center
3: yeah so it's been a it's a great um, institution, it's been a wonderful conservative institution for years. Um, and we have a brand new president, Ryan T. Anderson, who is a, just a, a wonderful um, just a good good person and a real um, advocate for um, all the things that we're talking about in this conversation, the family and the faith and uh, and ethics in public policy, literally putting ethics into our policies. So he brought my co-author for theology home. We, we, I have a, a, another series of books called Theology Home. I co-authored with a great woman named Mary Gress. And he saw what we were doing and said, you know, I want you to have an institutional home here because we want to defend the family not just in policy but also in practice. Um, and that's our goal with Theology Home: is to really give a positive and um, substantive, uh, you know, uh, direction for families. You know, so something they can look to you for inspiration, but also for a sort of a, a roadmap of this is how, you know, a family life works. This is how we, this is how, you know, we can strive better to do it better. Um, and this is the why behind a family. This is why family life is important and why it is such a noble vocation. Um, and not just, you know, this hidden life that doesn't matter, but rather this hidden life that actually changes the world, you know, um, from uh, from the bottom up. So he brought us on to direct the theology Home Project. Uh, and it's been a great place to be. There's amazing things happening there within my colleagues.
1: Um, So we're we're very excited to be there. Noel, um, how did you get involved in in the uh, Ethics and Public Policy Center, and how has it impacted your life and career?
3: Uh, It's been great. So Ryan just reached out to Carrie uh, and me um, uh, just as he was transitioning into the role of president. His wife actually is a, has been a big Theology of Home fan. She has read our books, and she we have a daily web, um, free email subscription where we kind of give, curate news uh, media for um, mostly women, but we have a lot of men too. Um, and so she, I think she probably she might have introduced the idea of Theology of Home coming, at, coming on to the EPPC, uh, and he was luckily amenable to it and very encouraging to us. So it's been great for both of us. I mean, we're... Uh, looking, we looking for um, new funding for to expand our ministry. Um, you know, we have a lot of things bubbling up that we want to do. We just we just finished a third book. Uh, we would love to get a podcast going to encourage women. Um, and it's been it's just been uh, it's been a great thing to to have. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a bigger platform, and it's been um, it's been fantastic. The encouragement of all of our colleagues there is just wonderful, and they are. Uh, scholars of immense capacity, and it's, it's just been a tr- tremendous honor for us to be uh, affiliated with them.
1: Noel, talk to us here in Florida about your state of California. All we <laughs> all we read about are fires and mm-hmm. uh, controversy and lefties, and on and on it goes. So, what what's the California you know, and where you live?
3: I'm a lifelong California person, I, except for a couple of years when I lived in other states. But um, I, I live, where I live, actually, is Central Coast. It's a little bit buffered from the more crazy uh, crazy locations of San Francisco and Los Angeles. I, but I, I also love both San Francisco and Los Angeles. So I've over the years just been going there my whole life to both cities. And it has been very sad. There is a marked difference in, in the experience of those cities that everyone realizes and is trying to figure out what to do about I have dear friends in the Los Angeles area who have left the state. Um, a lot of people in San Francisco I know are fleeing the city too. It's just become almost unbearable and to raise children in, especially it just feels like you're walking through human tragedy and also taking a risk because it, it, there's increased increase in violence and the presence of um, just, you know, homeless tent cities all over the place is, is new. And um, yeah, it just feels like a dystopian nightmare. A bit. But um so I'm not exactly sure what the answer is other than, you know, I'm hoping we recall our governor um, and get someone else who can really create some change because we've been doing the same policies and letting the same people run the state for so long. And it, it's it's just going downhill, um, but it is a state worth saving. I, I, I love it a lot.
1: Noelle Maring has been our guest. Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington. The book, Awake not woke. Speaking of books, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we look at uh, the 25 key leaders, some famous, some not so much during the Revolutionary War period and what they did and how they led and why we even have a country today. Our country's a miracle. We had no business beating Great Britain back then, uh, but with great leadership. Boy, that that was the difference. So revolutionary leadership and awake, not woke. Go up to Amazon, get it done. Uh, We've got a wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando.
0: More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM
1: 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, In that first segment, Matthew Kelly from Cincinnati, Life is Messy. And then we went to Ventura, California. Uh, Noelle Maring was there, and we talked about her book, Awake, Not Woke. And folks, I just want to give you another little lecture about getting your shots for COVID. Mayor Demings is pleading with our community uh, to get it done. To uh, your safety, safety of your family, safety of the community. The shots are free. It's no big deal. Uh, they, they, it stings a little bit when you get the shot. We, Ruth and I, have had both shots, and. Uh, we feel uh, confident you know that uh, that we're in good shape health-wise with this this virus so get it done just take care of it and uh, everybody in this community will be grateful well we're back next week and for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the New AM 990 and FM 101.5 the word in Orlando and Uh, Have a wonderful week ahead. God bless.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word.